0: Neglecting the component of what the poor perceive as attainable is a potentially serious shortcoming. If I told you there's a field where research is being applied to
1: tackle poverty traps, increase desegregation efforts, reduce unwanted teen pregnancies, and raise awareness around the risks of HIV, oh, and that much of that work and research happens through TV production and consumption, Would you guess I'm speaking about economics? I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring how what we see on TV can impact everything from our own aspirations to major decisions we make in our lives. Today's guest, economist Eliana Laferrera, is an expert on development economics, focusing on topics like social mobility, counteracting stereotypes, and fragile environments. From a young age, she knew she wanted to help people and work on problems related to poverty. As a teenager, she assumed that fields like psychiatry or even philosophy would set her on that path until she discovered a program at Milan's renowned Bocconi University, which at the time was called Economics and Social Disciplines. She went on to receive her PhD at Harvard University before returning to Bocconi, where she is a professor today. In her work, La Fanetta challenged the traditional thinking around poverty cycles by illustrating that it's not a matter of only examining a person's economic situation or the resources they have available, it's about changing their mindset.
0: I think of aspirations as objectives that people aim to achieve or fulfill with their lives. It doesn't mean necessarily that they think it is realistic that they will achieve them. So. I would distinguish the expectation of what I'm likely to accomplish from the aspiration of what I ideally would like to accomplish. Neglecting the component of what the poor perceive as attainable is a potentially serious shortcoming. So the traditional approach of what we call poverty traps is to think that uh, individuals who are particularly poor and so poor that they cannot invest some minimum amount, will have low investments and these low investments will keep them poor. Now, that approach tells you that uh, the way to get people out of poverty is to give them a chunk of resources so that they can make that step and invest that amount. When you look at the reality, sometimes you find that even when people have the opportunity of accessing resources, they choose not to. One of the possible explanations is that people don't think that, uh, you know, making that jump is something that's available to them. Sometimes you see that parents don't really believe that their kids have a shot at going to college. And so if they don't have a shot, why enroll them in a high school that's particularly demanding? And this eventually means that they will be enrolled in a school that doesn't give them the opportunity to improve their social status and they will remain in a relatively disadvantaged position. So this type of vicious circle where you don't think you can achieve something, hence you underinvest, has been called aspiration trap. And the implication is that giving resources will not be enough. You need to help people change their mindset. In our very first episode
1: of this podcast, we spoke about how important representation is when it comes to supporting more diversity within the field of economics. And the same logic applies here as well it's not only about the resources you have available to you or the income bracket you may find yourself in. If there aren't signals around you that your goal is even possible, it becomes much harder to envision it for yourself.
0: One thing that is not highly formalized, but uh, to me is quite clear in the aspirations work, is that to the extent that this goal remains very abstract and far away, It's hard for people to relate to it, but when you show it in an exemplification of what the goal looks like and how do you get from where you are to that goal. So you show a character that's first taking some literacy classes, then applying for a loan, then setting up a small business. Then you're showing actually a path towards reaching that goal. That's what makes people perceive, oh, I can do
1: it as well. And this can happen through media and through personal experiences. It will come as no surprise to any of you that what we see our friends and family doing can have a direct impact on our own actions, what we see is feasible for ourselves, and even what's
0: acceptable. Something that I think is promising, especially in terms of the power and coverage that it would have, is interventions that run through peers, through your friends. While we've started Extensively, the effect that interactions with your peers might have on your performance, uh, we've studied less the effect that they might have on your aspirations and goals.
1: La Ferreira and her co-researchers put this theory to test at a university in South Africa. The university already had a system in place where some of the students are randomly allocated to dorms, meaning they aren't allowed to choose which residents they live in or who they reside
0: with. Why did you choose South Africa for this study? South Africa is a context where, because of the history of apartheid, there are still quite deep-seated prejudices and there's a certain extent of disadvantage of the Black South African population. We asked freshmen the week in which they entered the dorms to take a survey, and uh, in the survey... There was an implicit association test that was measuring the stereotypes they held towards the other groups. And then we let them interact throughout the academic year with their roommate. We went back at the end of the academic year to see if the implicit bias of those who had been exposed to a same-race roommate was different from those who had a mixed room. And we actually found quite strikingly that the bias of white South Africans who had been paired with a black South African roommate had decreased quite significantly. So that's good news from the point of view of integration. We also found that the performance of the black South African roommate had improved, plausibly because of the interaction and also the, the reduction in this perceived threat from the negative stereotype that the disadvantaged group might have. Their network of friends changed. That to us was a first piece of evidence telling us that improving interactions and making people have contact with members of another group that might have different goals or different aspirations actually leads to a virtuous circle where both of the groups change their attitudes and the group that has to catch up, for example, on the academic front, is able to make some progress that way.
1: So what we see reflected in the world around us can impact the aspirations we set for ourselves and how we interact with others. In her more recent work, La Ferreira has applied these learnings to examine how social networks can be used as a tool to influence young people. This time, all the way in Brazil and with a secondary yet very specific
0: goal in mind. If I want to change your aspirations, do I need to reach out to you directly or can I do it by reaching out to some of your friends? And which friends? Uh, We've used tools from network theory which allow us to measure how central people are. So a central individual is one that is connected to many of the other people in the school. You're actually able to understand who are the key players, the nodes of this network that you want to hit with a particular information or treatment. And so we're working to try and use an intervention that boosts students' aspirations to help students think of a longer term horizon for their educational choices and at the same time reduce teen pregnancy rates because this is a context where one in five girls has a child before the age of 19 and where one of the reasons that these girls bring for why it's not such a bad idea for them is that anyway they're not going to do so much with their lives. So this is a context where maybe health education uh, per se and telling them how to use a condom might not be enough because if they are actually not negatively uh, surprised by the pregnancy, that's not something they're seeking. But combining this health information with messages that tell them, okay, let's see what happens if instead of dropping out of high school, you manage to finish high school. So making them realise that there is an alternative way for their future could really break this circle. And then our bet, which might or might not be successful in the end, is that instead of having a really high-intensity interventions where you target each and every one of the students, you can have something more scalable from a policy perspective where you only target a small number of students, and then they become peer educators. But can you be educational and entertaining at the same time?
1: That's a question La asked when exploring whether you can change not only someone's aspirations, but their belief systems as a whole. It was also a question that Walt Disney asked himself. When describing True Life Adventures, a documentary series produced by Walt Disney Productions between 1948 and 1960, Disney referred to the series as educational entertainment. It was and remains the concept of any media that is intended to educate, but in the process also entertains. Today, the portmanteau edutainment is used to categorize media that accomplishes both, but not everybody is sold on this concept.
0: There's, as you may imagine, a very long debate on whether television is good or bad. And uh, the first reaction in many cases is just to think of TV as not so stimulating for your brain. There is a concern about time use and crowding out of other activities that might be social activities, sports, homework. Now, this particular view has been debated and uh, tested with different degree of rigor over time. I would say that we don't have strong evidence that it's damaging if anything one of the economic studies says that for non-native English speakers exposure to TV in preschool years was actually good. But what I do with my work is slightly different. It's not really asked about the cognitive development effects of TV, but more about the use of television as a way of conveying messages that could be educational. So hence the word edutainment. And this could work equally well for kids, teenagers, adults, uh, in the sense that we just try to exploit the immediate reach that these means of communication has, especially towards populations with low literacy levels. (laughs)
1: La Ferreira set out to determine whether what we see on TV can not only entertain and educate, but impact major life decisions as well. To find these answers, she began her research in what may seem like an unlikely area, Brazilian telenovelas. These soap operas produced largely in Latin America are as known for their sometimes over-the-top antics as they are for their diehard fans. What were you looking for or at with this research?
0: I looked at how the fact that from the mid-60s to the basically mid-80s, the family size of characters in those novellas was very small and women were either childless or had maybe one child, how that affected people's preferences for the number of children to have. And I showed quite dramatic impact on fertility rates, meaning that in cities that started receiving this type of programs, fertility rates would start dropping the year immediately after the entry of these TV networks. People saw relatively well-off and happy families on the screen. They saw that they were smaller and somehow decided that by decreasing their own family size, they might improve their living conditions. But surely
1: these telenovelas are not written from an edutainment stance, or are they? I've
0: worked and I keep working in collaboration with those who produce programs to embed messages in these TV series. So in this case, the role of the media is more proactive and there's a fine balance between uh, overloading the program with educational content, which might actually uh, fire back, and uh, providing something that's non-educational at all. So to the extent that you manage to strike the right balance, we're trying to see if people change their opinions, but also their behavior. And one study that I've done in Nigeria recently um, tries to assess the potential of these uh, entertainment media for HIV prevention. So this is a study of the impact of a TV series called Sugar. And what this TV series does is to show young people in a very hip and lively context in urban Nigeria. But then some of them are having concurrent partners, unprotected sex, and so risky sexual behaviors overall. The show, without being judgmental, just shows you the ups and downs and the consequences of this. So we implemented a randomized control trials where we literally you know, screened versions of the series across communities, but holding some communities outside the experiment in the sense that we were showing something else, and then compared opinions and behaviours of people exposed to the educational TV series with those not exposed. And we actually found that not only their knowledge of uh, prevention and treatment for HIV had improved, but also their attitudes and their behavior. So we saw a reduction in concurrent partnerships. We saw an increase in testing rates, quite dramatic, and a decrease in uh, STDs for women. So this suggests that even on deep-seated preferences, like those related to sexual behavior, these type of programs can potentially work.
1: When you are conducting the type of research that is in part fueled by media or TV consumption, are these effects short-term, like the dopamine hits we get while actually
0: watching the program, or are these effects long-lasting? The Brazil work, I'd say it's long-term because we see these declining fertility patterns that are persistent, but it's also a case where the exposure was massive. Why? Because these uh, novellas are actually... Six months long uh, at least, and they are on air every single night for one hour. So if you think about this as a treatment is a pretty intense one. What we've done with sugar, for example, which was uh, you know a lot more compact as an intervention, we ha- gathered them for three consecutive weekends was to look at impacts eight months down the line. It's not very easy to assess long-term effects, but I think it's, from a policy perspective, an important question because you want to know whether you need to keep producing these type of programs and also possibly at what frequency people should be exposed. All of these uh, design type of questions are not yet answered, I think, with the evidence we got
1: so far. Speaking of the policy perspective, are governments investing in this research and the
0: production required to produce it? These type of programs are not yet the norm in commercial TV productions. They will be done by either NGOs or foundations that tend to raise money from donors who are interested in development or other social goals. But um, one could also think of a model um, where... Without exaggerating on the educational side, but commercial TV productions might start embedding some messages. In your view, are there certain geographic
1: areas or demographic segments that are either more or less likely to respond to this type of
0: messaging in this format? There have been some recent attempts to tackle norms related, for example, to women autonomy or gender imbalances by showing examples of female entrepreneurs, the overall idea that you can show possibilities that people might not see around them, I think has taken quite some momentum now. But I think there is a sense in which the uh, breadth of information and sources that is available to people in industrial democracy is wider. So you could expect that the marginal impact of these type of programs might be stronger in places where people don't read newspapers, don't hear about these things in school, don't have so many informed friends with whom they can talk. So I think the development community has adopted this approach maybe quite enthusiastically recently because uh, compared to the available spectrum of communication tools in some of these regions, uh, it seems quite promising.
1: You've compared development economics to what malaria was for medical research. Can you
0: elaborate on that? If you were a student of development many years ago, there was a sense in which the available tools and data were much more constrained compared to other fields that had been receiving funds and inputs on the research front for many years. So it was clear that there was a need to understand development better, but there weren't so many people working on it. The comparison with malaria is because if you think of the sheer number of people affected by this disease, you know, it would seem the first place where you put uh, R&D funds, but, somehow the returns from research because of the low ability to cash in the proceeds in patents and so on have not historically been such to spur an enormous amount of research on malaria. You could think of the field of development as one where historically not that many people had been working but the returns in terms of how many things we could still learn and how many people would be affected by these findings were huge. Now, I must say that in the past 10, 15 years, things have improved a lot. But I I still think, uh, by and large, if you consider the number of people affected by poverty in the world and how many economists are working on those issues compared to other questions within different fields of economics, I still think we're understaffed. And I still think there's uh, so much room for people wanting to work in development to have a real contribution.
1: Join us next week to learn more about what helps people make better choices in life. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.